Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Las Vegas. Yes, it's UFC Las Vegas, not UFC Vegas, because this isn't taking place at the Apex. It's taking place at a different venue. So it is called UFC Las Vegas, and it is headlined by a big-time bantamweight matchup between Pyotr Jan and Marab Davalishvili, not to mention a great heavyweight fight in the co-main event slot between Alexander Volkov and Alexander Romanov. A ton of other great fights on this card. Can't wait to break it for you guys. Break it down for you guys later on in this podcast. But first, let's quickly talk about UFC 285 and the predictions from that one. I went 12-2 and on predictions overall. Uh, Lock the Night comes through with Dracus Duplessis coming through and uh, doing what I expected him to do. It was going to be ugly in the early goings of that matchup, but I knew if he were to have survived, he would have taken over in that second round and knocked out Derek Brunson. Shout out to anybody that got in on the plus money on Duplessis going into that second round, but it was inevitable that Brunson was going to slow down and succumb to that big South African power, and that's what Duplessis was able to do. Through UFC, Bellator, and all the regional breakdowns I've been doing in 2023, we pushed the lock of the night prediction record to 20 and 2 with Drake's two pluses coming through this past weekend. Appreciate everybody that's been checking all that regional content out on the Patreon. Let's get quickly back to the 285 recap here. Dog of the night does end up shit in the bed here out of Ujo. A very popular dog uh, ends up taking a loss, and that pushes our dog of the night prediction record to 12 and 10 for the year. The other prediction I want to talk about is John Jones. I was surprised at the amount of pushback that I was getting about that pick, especially with uh, apparently I was being ignorant in regards to how I was breaking that fight down. But I really believed that he is on a completely different level than people were making him out uh, to have been at, especially with the last three fights that he had at light heavyweight. I kept saying that I believe it was his lack of motivation going into those fights. He was highly motivated to get into the heavyweight division and start making noise right off the bat. And that's what he exactly ended up doing. Uh, yes, in normal circumstances, a three-year-long layoff and all the other circumstances outside of the cage that were affecting John Jones going into this fight, yes, I would normally take those things into consideration. But there are certain few fighters that you make exceptions for. Tatiana Suarez the pre- uh, previous week, John Jones this week. The greatest fighters in their divisions. Those are the types of fighters that you just be like, Meh, but yeah, those are out-of-cage things. In-cage, they are still as dominant as they've ever been, and that's what they showcased over the last couple weeks. So big win for John Jones, made it look easy as well, and look at this now. He's already minus 360 against Deepa Miocic. I'm looking forward to seeing whoever's going to be taking the plus money on that Miocic side, but John Jones should still be going out there and doing great things. Last thing I want to say, I got shit on for uh, picking too many favorites on this pass card. Newsflash. Favorites went 13 and 1 on this card, and the only one that ended up winning, I don't think anybody was predicting, in Alexa Grasso. Shout out to anybody that did pick Grasso, but sometimes you got to go with all favorites. And that's not my style. If you guys have been listening to me for a while, I try to look for those underdogs. And if I'm truly not 100% sold on them, I'm not going to make them my prediction. So don't look for that. I am. I'm going off of matchups, and if they so happen to be the underdog, they so happen to be the underdog. I will let you know if they're live or not, even if I'm picking against them, but my predictions are my predictions, and I don't. I just don't pick fa- uh, underdogs for the sake of picking an underdog on a card because all I have is favorites. Just remember that. Also, uh, quick shout out to everybody that's been checking out the Patreon link in the description below. Uh, great regional show this past week with Cage Warriors, PFL as well. I think combined between them, we went 9-1 on predictions. Also had a solid underdog as well in the main event of the PFL Challenger Series. This coming week, we got LFA 154, I believe that's the number, as well as PFL Challengers Week 7, both going to be breaking down on the Patreon. Again, link in the description below if you guys want to check that out. Bellator this week as well, but luckily for you guys, I'll be dropping a full card breakdown for that on the YouTube here, a full episode breaking down every single fight on that card, Bellator 292. I'm aiming for a Wednesday release. No promises, but I hope to get it out by no later than Thursday. But Wednesday is the target date for that podcast. So keep your guys, keep your eyes peeled for that because I know you guys enjoy that. Not a lot of people doing PFL breakdowns or sorry, uh, Bellator breakdowns or full card breakdowns at least. That's what I want to continue to provide for you guys. And I appreciate all the love and support that you guys show on those podcasts whenever I drop them. All right, let's stop the jibber jabber. And we got a ton of fights to get through for this UFC Las Vegas card. So without further ado, let's get into them. 
Kicking things off in the welterweight division, we got 17-5 Carlston Harris going up against 17-3-1 Abubakar Nurmagomedov. Starting off on the Harris side, he's coming off a loss to a highly touted prospect, and I guess he's breaking through into the top five now, Shavkat Rachmanov. Uh, he's coming off to a loss to him via knockout, but that snapped a two-fight winning streak that Carlson had going into that fight. Carlson was a very highly touted prospect himself, even though he's 35 years old, 34 when he got into the UFC. But given his strength, his submission prowess, and his insane knockout power, a lot of people were kind of circling him as being that next guy up that a lot of people should be keeping their their eyes on. Uh, coming from Guyanese descent, he does train out of Brazil, but given that he is 35 years old, we need to consider the fact that he's probably closer to the tail end of his career. He throws with a lot of wild and reckless abandon, and usually that makes him dangerous against certain opponents, like he was against Impa Kasanganai, and even his submission game, like he was able to showcase against Christian Aguilera, he's very dangerous, and he has a ton of finishing threat and uh, a lot of uh, uh, issues that people need to worry about when they're trying to close a distance and get their own offense off, but... I do believe that this is one of those guys that will start to slow down if you can withstand that early barrage from him, withstand the sneaky choke game that he has and that reckless striking that he has and overcome those finishing threats and eventually take over and have your way with him as well. But still a very dangerous opponent, big for this division. I think he still has a couple UFC victories left in him, but it depends on the level of competition he's going up against. Like I said, he's going up against Abubakar Nurmagomedov, who's currently riding a two-fight winning streak after dropping his UFC debut to David Zavada by submission. He's now defeated Jared Gooden and Gadzi Omar Gadziev, but it's particularly the Gooden fight that had me more impressed with him than I originally expected I'd be, especially after that flub of a performance that he had against Zavada. Everybody expected Abubakar to drag that fight to the ground against Gooden and have success from on top, that being the only way that he would have success. However, he beat Gooden to the punch for the first 10 minutes of that fight and then relied on his grappling in that third round to secure that victory. He looked sharp in that fight, his jab looked precise, and he looked a lot better than many people expected from him going into that fight. The Omar Gadziev fight, very easy for him. He was able to land the uh, takedowns when he needed. Omar Gadziev seemed to have gassed four or five minutes into that fight, allowing Abubakar to grind out the rest of that fight and pretty much cruise on his way to a decision victory. At 33 years old and not being as active as you would expect him to be, I don't know what the ceiling is for Abubakar, nor do I think he cares about getting into any sort of title contention or anything like that. I think he just likes to fight, and I think he likes to fight on his own schedule, which is why we don't see him as active as we normally would expect somebody of his stature to be. This is one of those stay-away matchups for me on the entire card, because I know that Carlton Harris is very dangerous, and I think that Nurmagomedov is one of those guys that will more than likely slip up under that type of pressure, but if Nurmagomedov is able to showcase the discipline that he did in the Jared Gooden fight jab up Carlson Harris from distance, land those takedowns when he needs to while keeping his neck safe because Harris will obviously be looking for that front choke series, anacondas, darces, all that stuff. But if Nurmagomedov can stay safe, not have a slip up like he had in the David Zavada fight, he should be able to grind out this fight and I think he should be able to win this one by decision. Next up in the flyweight division, we got 21-12-1 Tyson Nam going up against 12-5-2 Bruno Silva. Starting off on the Tyson Nam side, he is coming off a spectacular knockout victory over O'Day Osborne last time around, where he was able to take care or take advantage of the reckless striking abandon of O'Day Osborne and counter with a beautiful punch to knock O'Day Osborne out and pick up a victory. Now that pushes Tyson Nam to 3-2 and two in his last five fights, but it clearly showcases that he can go out there and knock most of his opponents out, but if he is not able to, he doesn't really have the greatest decision-winning type of uh, game plan. He mainly tries to go out there and just get a beat on you, try to counter you, and try to knock you out. That's it. More often than not, you see all of his losses coming via decision because it's difficult for opponents to find him and hit him cleanly enough because they're worried about the counter that's coming back their way. He does a decent enough job in terms of staying safe on the mat when opponents do look to take him there, and he has a decent enough get-up game as well to keep him out of any bad trouble. 
But as we saw in the match now fight and Kai Car France fight, if you can avoid that big knockout power of Tyson Nam, you should be able to put numbers on him, put output on him, and take home a decision victory. I believe at 39 years old, we shouldn't be expecting any new wrinkles in Tyson Nam's game, but I do think that he can still go out there and possess some knockout abilities and knockout wins. But I just don't know how far it will take him in the UFC. And especially being 39 years old in the flyweight division usually is not the greatest indicator of someone having success at this point in their career. Moving on to Bruno Silva, he's coming back from a lengthy layoff where he's dealt with a, ha- a full uh, or a set of injuries, I believe the main one being his hand injury that he was dealing with, but he's finally back at it, looking to build upon the two-fight winning streak he's been able to put together over his last two fights. Last time around, he knocked out the scrub Victor Rodriguez, making quick work of him. I think that fight only took about a minute or just about maybe 70 seconds or so, but was able to dispatch of him pretty quickly. Before that, he was able to deal with the early onslaught of J.P. Bays and then eventually finish him in the second round. But it was the fight before that where I really got a beat on Bruno Silva and realized that this guy's actually much better than a loss to Khalid Taha and David Dvorak would indicate. I remember having a pretty chalky bet on the Tagir Ulenbekov side, and when they were about to read the decision there, I was sweating my ass off, wondering whether I was going to get the nod or not, being on the Ulenbekov side. Thankfully, I was, but Bruno Silva definitely performed a lot better than many people expected him to that light, that night. Obviously, training with the fight-ready guys, you've got to believe that he always comes in with the best game plan possible, and not to mention the best training possible, given the guys over there like Eddie Cha and Santino DeFranco, who do such a great job of preparing their opponents for high-level fights. A little bit of a layoff for Bruno Silva here, but I think he is well-tuned enough and well-prepared enough to avoid that big bomb that Tyson Nam normally catches his opponents with whenever he gets his hand raised. I do like the improvements that Silva has been making in his combination striking and his boxing, but I think his ability to drag this fight to the ground and eat up some time there to stay safe and stay away from that big power of Tyson Nam will allow him to get his hand raised in this matchup. I'm going to go Bruno Silva by decision. Just be careful of that Tyson Nam knockout power. Nam by KO is usually the best way to bet him, considering that's how he wins the majority of his fights at this level. I just don't see it coming to fruition this weekend. I'm going to go Bruno Bulldog Silva by decision. Next up in the bantamweight division, we got 22-6 Victor Henry going up against 23-8 Tony Gravely. Starting off on the Victor Henry side, who's coming off his first UFC loss to Hafiala Sansao last time around. He went in as a pretty big favorite that night, but could not get a beat on the counter-striking of Hafiala Sansao. The fight before that, Victor Henry had his way with high-level fighter Hauni Barcelos and pulled off a very big upset that night. I believe the recency bias mixed in with the fact that Rafael Asensio was on a four-fight losing streak going into his fight with Victor Henry. I think that's why Victor Henry was such a big, big favorite going into that fight. However, we see that he still does have some work to do in terms of his technical striking abilities, but with his knack for pushing the pace, usually being the one with the forward pressure and keeping the output high against his opponents, he's usually able to get his hand raised, as he showed in the Hauni Barcelos fight. He has a very active guard when opponents look to take him to the ground, and he's almost immediately throwing up submissions, whether it's to secure the submission or at least to roll out of a bad position, get back to his feet so that he can get back to his handiwork, especially his pressure style of striking that normally breaks opponents, exactly what he was able to do against Hany Barcelos. I'm a big fan of Victor Henry, and I kind of rode him off going into that Hani Barcelos fight, but he won a lot of respect from me that night. And even though he lost his next fight to Rafael Sansao, I don't think that this guy was a you know one-time wonder or a one-hit wonder with a Hani Barcelos fight. I think he is skilled, and even at 35, I still believe he has something to offer to this UFC bantamweight division. On the flip side, we got Tony Gravely, who has a plethora of more uh, UFC experience compared to Victor Henry, but he's coming off a loss to his flaming hot prospect, Javid Basharat, and in that fight, Tony Gravely was unable to get a beat on Javid Basharat's striking, and that ultimately pulled out some desperation takedown attempts from him, which Javid was easily able to stuff and pivot away from and get back to his own striking game. And that is where we see the shortcomings of a guy like Tony Gravely. He is a very solid wrestler and loves to grind his opponents to the ground and uh, ground his opponents and then eventually grind them out from on top, like he was able to do against Simon Oliveira three fights ago. Or he has some big knockout power as he showcased in the Anthony Burchak and Johnny Munoz Jr. fight. But 
just as we saw in the Nate Maness and Javi Bashrat fights, if he's not able to get high uh, amounts of control time against these guys on the mat, and if he's facing a lot of resistance, especially in the striking realm and guys getting back to their feet relatively easily, that's where he starts to struggle with his punches. Yes, he has big power early in his fights, but as fights start to go on as an, and as opponents start to stuff takedowns and get back to their feet, Gravely starts to panic a little bit, which allows opponents to strike with him uh, and, and beat him to the punch and potentially even knock him out. That's where his shortcoming is. So it really needs to uh, depend on the fact that he can ground fights and maintain uh, a solid amount of control time. Uh, otherwise, things get very sticky for him if they have to play out in the striking room for a long time. I'm not going to let Victor Henry fumbling the bag last time around as a big favorite against veteran Hafiala Sunsao deter me from backing him in this favorable matchup that he has against Tony Gravely. Gravely will obviously have the wrestling advantage here, but I don't believe in his ability to hold Victor Henry down and control him for vast majorities of this matchup or vast uh, moments of this matchup. I think that Henry will be able to work back to his feet and then his combination of forward pressure and output of, and, and striking and volume will start to break down Tony Gravely. And I wouldn't even be surprised if Henry pulls off a late finish in this matchup, but I am going to think or say that he wins this by decision just off of uh, inevitable takedown defense, which will start to get better as fight, the fight starts to go on. His ability to work back to his feet relatively quickly in the early goings of this matchup, and as long as he can avoid that big early power from Gravely on the feet, he should be able to stalk him and out volume him and then break him with the output just as he has done to Ahani Barcelos in the past so official prediction here Victor Henry by decision next up in the women's flyweight division we got 14 and 8 Ariane Lipsky going up against 11 and 5 JJ Aldridge Starting off on the Lipsky sky, who was who coming off a knockout loss to Priscilla Cachoeira in her last matchup, we're starting to see that the ceiling for her in the UFC is pretty low. She's two or three. Uh, yeah, two and three in her last five fights with all three of those losses coming via finish. She lost to Antonina Shevchenko, Montana De La Rosa, and at the aforementioned Priscilla Cachuera. But when you see her wins, you realize the level of competition she's able to defeat and then the level of competition she starts to come short up against. She defeated Mandy Baum, who I'm not even entirely sure if she's still in the UFC or not, and even Luana Carolina, which was a you know very weird situation where she was able to get that... Uh, knee bar um position and torque on it eventually get that submission but if they were to run that fight back i honestly wouldn't be surprised if carolina was able to get her hand raised considering the improvements that she's been able to make uh, another fighter that Lipsky was able to defeat isabella de padua not in the ufc anymore we obviously know what uh you know level of competition she was at and Lipsky is far from that queen of violence moniker that she brought into the ufc especially with how highly touted that she was it's unfortunate because she was a fun fighter for the KS sw promotion that talent just has not been able to transfer here to the ufc especially with a higher level of opponents that she's going up against yeah she moved over to american top team a couple fights ago that doesn't seem to be working that well for her but i i think she only has a couple more fights left at the ufc level before the ufc decides to give her her pink slip She's going up against UFC veteran J.J. Aldrich, who's currently riding a 3-1 uh, run over her last four fights, with her last loss coming to Aaron Blanchfield, who has propped herself in a very solid position in the flyweight division to, uh, based off of her win against Jessica Andrade a couple weeks ago. But J.J. Aldrich is doing a phenomenal job in that fight. She utilized her footwork, her striking, and her combinations to keep Blanchfield on the outside and pull out desperation takedown attempts from her that she was able to easily telegraph, easily see, get out of the way of, and then eventually get back to her striking. It was a minor hiccup in her giving up her neck to Aaron Blanchfield in a standing position where Blanchfield was able to latch onto it and take it on home with her. I think Aldridge is definitely uh, beating herself up about that loss, especially considering where Aaron Blanchfield now finds herself in the division. But I don't think that sets J.J. Aldridge too far back. I think she's gained a plethora of experience over the last uh, several years fighting at a high level. And, you know, even her last loss before the Blanchfield fight against Sabina Mazo, I thought she deserved to win that fight. She's a very difficult fighter to deal with when she is in her groove with her striking combinations and landing with the damage that she does. Uh, I think a lot of people were overlooking her because of her early UFC run, but I think she's very much cemented herself a spot on the UFC roster and really garnered the respect of a lot of people, especially considering that she's in a you know, minus 200, minus 250 range in this specific matchup. 
I think this is a great matchup for J.J. Aldridge. Although this will more than likely be taking out uh, taking place in the striking realm where Ariane Lipsky could have her most success. I just think that the footwork, combination striking, and the damage that J.J. Aldridge is going to be able to accrue on the feet will end up being too much for Ariane Lipsky. I, will even would, I, I wouldn't even count out the fact that J.J. Aldridge will look to take this fight to the mat where she might even be able to have more success. Uh, Lipsky, I don't believe in her ability to pull off submissions off of her back. The one that she got against Carolina, that was just a very weird Hail Mary type of submission and such a weird position that they found themselves in for uh, Lipsky to get that submission. I'd be surprised if Aldrich finds herself in a similar situation. I think a combination of Aldrich, Aldrich's output, footwork, and ability to stay safe at distance is going to overwhelm Lipsky here and I think Aldrich boxes her way to a decision victory. Moving back down to the men's bantamweight division, we got Mario Bautista coming in with an 11-2 and record. He goes up against the Argentinian Guido Canetti, who comes in with a 10-6 and record. Starting off on the Mario Bautista side, he's riding a three-fight winning streak, which could easily be a little bit longer than that if he had not fallen victim to Trevin Jones via knockout in the second round of their fight, especially considering how much success Bautista was having in the early goings of that matchup. Bautista has gone through a serious physical transformation since we first saw him in the UFC, which I believe his first fight was against Corey Sandhagen, but he has very much evolved his game, evolved his physique, and utilizes it very well inside the cage. He's pulled off two straight uh, submission victories over his last two fights, one over Brian Kelleher and the most recent over a extremely deflated Benito Lopez. I gotta say, I did not enjoy watching that fight, even though I had a lot riding on Bautista inside the distance that night. I just think that Benito Lopez came in there for a paycheck. You know, he hadn't fought for a very long time, and you could see that he was not in the you know physical condition we were normally able to see him in uh, when he was a little bit more active a couple years ago but Bautista took full advantage of that showed no type of uh, you know um, hesitancy in terms of taking advantage of a fighter like that and he was able to get Benito out of there relatively easily but Bautista I think you know if he continues to get some of these layup matchups the UFC is giving him that will continue to allow him to build his confidence and start marching towards that top 15 of the division which is where I think he really deserves to be especially if he can continue to put on these dominant type performances against the level of competition the UFC has given him speaking of the level of competition the UFC has given him they're throwing in 43 year old Guido Canetti who you know 43 years old at bantamweight is not the best we, we were just talking about uh, a 39 year old flyweight in, in Tyson uh, Nam earlier on this card and you know the the late 30s early 40 year olds are much better off in the light heavyweight and heavyweight division you know they don't need to rely as much on their quick reflexes or the legit skill required to fight at the these lower weight classes but luckily for Guido Canetti the UFC has given him some solid matchups over his last two fights in Chris Moutinho and Randy Costa who is able to dispose of relatively easily both those guys I believe were favorites going into those fights against Guido but Guido's veteran savvy his durability and his finishing prowess was able to shine through in those fights eventually putting both of those opponents away but when we see him go up against guys like Marlon Vera Dinabat Carrillo or even Manon Martinez you see that he just doesn't have what it takes to hang with the even average level of UFC talent in the bantamweight division I am surprised that they're giving him this matchup this weekend but He's on a two-fight winning streak, and I don't think he has much time to waste. So why not make some noise while you're still with the UFC? And this is an opportunity for him to do so if he can break through and get his hand raised this weekend. I'm surprised that, one, Mario Bautista even accepted this fight, but two, that the UFC decided to, to throw Kennedy Mario Bautista's way. Bautista should be getting steps up in competition, but he is taking on a guy with a two-fight winning streak. So... It's going to be on Bautista to show Guido Canetti the door, especially with Guido being a 43-year-old bantamweight at this point in time. Bautista is looking career best, and I'm expecting him to go out there and get another win, especially by finish. I think it looks dominant as well, and I think it happens within 10 minutes of this fight. So give me violence. Give me Bautista by violence. Bautista by... I don't even know, submission or knockout, one of those will come to fruition. I'm going to lean submission, but I'll probably lean more so on the inside of the distance just to be on the safe side. Moving up to the middleweight division, we're going to be talking about Cedriquez Dumas coming in with a 7-0 record, going up against Josh Fremd, who's coming in with a 9-4 record. 
Let's start off on the Dumas side, who's coming off a spectacular win on the Contender Series, where he was able to earn his UFC contract with a nasty guillotine choke win over Matej Penaz. Uh, Very dominant performance there. It was a quick performance where he landed a big shot from on top, got his takedown, and as his opponent was working back to his feet, he snatched the neck and took it on home with him. That's what... Dumas likes to do. He likes to drag opponents to the ground and utilize his jujitsu where he finds that he is able to have most of his success. In terms of his striking prowess, he mainly just throws a lot of kicks to stay active, all in hopes of eventually closing that distance and dragging fights to the ground. He doesn't really train out of a high-level gym by any sorts, but at this level and you know at the 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 type of focus that he's getting from his coaches, it's working out for him. But I think it's just going to be a matter of time before he decides that he needs to join one of these bigger camps one of these more highly touted coaches in the UFC uh, so that he can take it to the next level. But at 27 years old, the kid looks like he has a ton of potential. At six foot two with a 79-inch reach, I think he has a very good frame for this middleweight division, and I'm looking forward to seeing if he can continue to bring his grappling prowess to this middleweight division and continue to keep that flawless record intact. Opposing him is going to be Josh Frem this weekend, uh, a product of Factory X over there in uh, Colorado. Uh, you know, one of the pupils of my one of my favorite coaches in the game, Mark Montoya. Josh Frem hoping to pick up his first ever UFC win after going 0-2 in his first two fights. He lost a decision to Anthony Hernandez, and that was a tough fight for him, even if he didn't take that fight on short notice. And then the Trishan Gore fight, he was dealing with Trishan's grapple-heavy approach early pretty well. It looked like he was trying to take over a little bit at the beginning or the ending of that first round, but in that second round, gave up his neck in a very bad position for Trishan Gore, and Gore took it home in one of the nastiest guillotine chokes I think anybody has ever seen putting Josh Fremd out cold that night. Friend is a decent all-around fighter with some decent striking, and he has a good gas tank as well, considering that he trains in Colorado, but I just don't know if his skill set has what it takes to compete at the UFC level. Given the opponent that he's going to be facing this weekend, this will be the ultimate barometer for him to find out whether he deserves to be in the UFC or not. Again, Dumas could end up being a very highly uh, touted prospect if he's able to pick up a big win here, but Josh Fremd should be beating these types of opponents at this point in his career to showcase that he still deserves to be on the big stage. I have question marks about this fight, especially with Dumas fighting higher levels of competition. Is Fremd a super high-level competitor? Probably not, but still higher level than what Dumas has been facing in the past. However, I don't believe in Fremd's abilities, and I do think at a certain point he's going to end up getting his neck snatched up again here, and I think Dumas will be able to take home that submission victory. Not a whole lot of confidence. I hope we see this fight trickle into the second and third rounds so we can see a little bit more from Dumas, but I do think he is the side here. I'm not so hot on playing him as a a favorite in his debut considering the lack of competition he's been fighting in the past and some question marks I still have about him but I think he gets his hand raised in the spot I'm going to go Dumas Dumas via decision or sorry via submission Heading back to the bantamweight division, we got 27-9 Hafiala Sunsau going up against 12-6 Davy Grant Starting off on the Hafiala Lucenso side, uh, he's coming off a win where it would snapped a career worst four fight losing streak last time around. He defeated the or Victor Henry by decision. Victor obviously fighting earlier on in this card as well, uh, and Lucenso showcased some of his best work that night, showcasing his counter striking and combination striking, which was landing on the Victor Henry side of things. With Victor constantly trying to close the distance, but getting met with offense pretty much every single time. Lucenso was able to land a couple takedowns in that matchup as well but was unable to get large amounts of control time that night but we know what he is best at and he showcased it throughout his career it's that precision combination striking especially when opponents want to close that distance and exchange in the pocket with him it's crazy that he's still in the ufc at 40 years old especially after that four or five losing streak that he was on but apparently the ufc likes him enough to keep him around still and possibly see him through until he decides to lay his gloves down in the ca- uh, in the cage I don't know if it'll be this weekend, but I expect within the next three or four fights, Asuncao will decide to hang it up, especially realizing that he won't be able to continue to compete at this high level, especially at 40 years old. 
In his losses against Ricky Simone, Cody Garbrandt, and even Marlon Marais, it seemed to be the durability that was the bane of the existence for Rafaela Sunsao, and I think that's what a lot of people are going to be worried about in his upcoming fights. It doesn't seem like he can really take a shot on the chin from power punchers as uh, easily as he used to, and that will ultimately be the downfall of his career if he continues to go out there and try to compete at this level. He's a solid fighter, great technical fighter, and more than likely will always be the better technical fighter going into these fights. But it's at a certain point that he's going to start meeting these younger, faster, and more powerful strikers, which will eventually end his night, not allowing him to showcase his technical striking prowess. Still very high-level competitor, and a guy that should not be easily overlooked, especially with him being the underdog this weekend. He's going up against Davy Grant, who's coming off a knockout victory over Louis Smoka last time around, and that snapped a two-fight losing streak for Davy Grant, although they were against high-level competitors in Marlon Vera and Adrian Yanez, showcasing that he can go to decision against guys that are probably technically better than him in the striking realm. But we saw in the Martin Day and Jonathan Martinez fights and even the Louis Smoka fight that David Grant can still go out there and crack with the best of them and possibly even put them out. In the Martinez fight, he got hurt himself a couple times but was able to find the knockout victory in the second round himself. In the Martin Day fight, another kind of closely competitive fight, Day obviously being the more technical striker that night, David Grant was able to showcase his power and still put those guys away. He will more than likely always be at a technical disadvantage, but the way that he strikes from distance, utilizes his kicks, and tries to just maintain his distance and keep his opponents at bay until they decide to close the distance so that he can uncork those big bombs that he has, he does a decent enough job in, in you know implementing that against a certain level of opponent. We obviously saw that his ceiling will likely be against guys like Adrian Yanez and Marlon Vera, but this fight this weekend against Rafael Asensio will be a good indicator of seeing how far Davey Grant can continue to take these things or, or this fight and his career in the UFC at the spry age of 37 years old. This one I've been going back and forth about over the last couple of days. I, you know, I, I see the technical advantages that Asunsaw has, but I really don't think that his chin is going to be able to take as much damage as Davy Grant will be looking to dish out in this matchup. Victor Henry got off a lot of damage on Asunsaw and didn't really hurt him to the point that he was almost close to finishing him. But I don't think that Henry was looking for power when he was hitting Asunsaw. I think he was more so looking to just touch, get the volume, get some damage off, but not. Ex uh, uh, expend too much energy where he'll end up gassing himself out against a much better technical fighter. Davy Grant is going to throw the kitchen sink at you. And I think one of those shots is going to be the night ender for a out here. Close fight. I can understand the underdog love that a Sao will likely be getting this week. However, I think that one of those big shots from Davy Grant are going to get through within the first 12 minutes of this fight. And I think that will likely be the end of the night for Rafael Asuncao. So, Final prediction, I'm going to go Davy Grant by knockout, but I'm not liking this price tag on him around that minus 160 range. Moving up to our first of two heavyweight fights on the card, we got 7-1 Carl Williams taking on 8-2-1 Lucas Dresky. Starting off on the Carl Williams side, he earned his contract to the UFC with a dominating victory over Jimmy Lawson on the contender series last season. Jimmy Lawson came into that fight as a minus 240 favorite given his Penn State high-level collegiate wrestling background. Carl Williams just said, cool story, bro. Check this wrestling out. And Carl Williams was able to drown him, winning that fight via decision. Very happy to catch that plus 200 underdog that night and was surprised at the amount of people that were disrespecting Carl Williams going into that fight just because Jimmy Lawson has that wrestling background. But Jimmy Lawson, we saw him defeat a bunch of his opponents within 30 seconds or less. And even in fights that went a little bit longer than that first round, that's where you see his skills start to diminish. And that's why I believe Carl Williams was the side that night. Carl has a solid amount of experience under his belt with eight professional fights, a couple of them coming under the PFL banner as well. But he is one of those fighters that loves utilizing his wrestling, his grappling, and his control time to keep his opponents on the mat and just grind them out, getting large amounts of control time and getting his hand raised by decision. He has some decent striking as well, and he looks to implement it when he feels he has a solid striking advantage over his opponents, like he did against Simon Marini two fights ago. But he does a good job of closing the distance with his striking, getting his paws on his opponents and dragging them to the mat and just doing it over and over and over again because he has a very good gas tank and is able to keep it up for 15 minutes if that's how he needs to win his fights. 
I'm kind of surprised that he's looking to stay at heavyweight here because he took the Jimmy Lawson fight on short notice. So I understand him going up to heavyweight for that fight. But the vast majority of his career was spent down at light heavyweight. But here he is taking a full training camp against Lucas Dresky up at heavyweight. So maybe he's just getting comfortable at this weight class now and more than happy to not to, to not have to cut weight during fight weeks whenever he's competing. On the Lucas Dresky side, I have a lot to apologize to this man for because I was absolutely shitting on him when I was breaking him down for his fight against Martin Budai. I had Budai as my lock of the night play that night because I just didn't see anything from Dresky on the regional scene that made me believe that he would give a guy like Budai issues. But we saw a much better striking game from him than we've seen in the past. We saw him utilize the cage and movement very well. And he was able to get out of the way of any type of clinch situation that Budai was looking to implement. But I think at a certain point through halfway through that first round, Budai kind of just abandoned that clinch style of dirty boxing that he likes to implement against his opponent and was more than happy to exchange with Dresky on the feet. Dresky was able to get off on more strikes and more volume, but it seemed like the judges put more weight on the fact that Budai looked like he was landing with more damage and more significance. I was honestly sweating my ass off when they went to a decision that night, thinking that I was going to have to have to rip up a ticket, but thankfully the judges saw it for the Budai side. I think I got away with one there, if I'm being honest. Dresky, again, much better than I initially gave him credit for, but I do think that he could still struggle against the UFC's uh, higher-level talent, even the middle of the division as well, if he's not able to showcase even more improvements than he did from the last fight. But he does... He shows good movement, good footwork, good output, and an improving gas tank. However, I'd like to see that put to the test against somebody that is going to be looking to test his gas tank a little bit more by trying to work for takedowns and grappling situations more than Martin Budai was able to that night. Like I said, Dresky very much impressed me in the Budai fight, but I think he's going to be facing more of a grapple-heavy approach here from Carl Williams. Budai gave up on it, like I said, within that first round of trying to initiate the clinch. But I think that Williams will be a little bit more dead set on trying to close that distance. And I think he'll be looking for opportunities to change levels under the incoming strikes of Brett Dresky. And from there, I think he'll be able to get in on the hips, push him up against, his, uh, up against the cage and drag him to the mat. I think that Williams will more than likely grind this fight out over 15 minutes, once again, getting his hand raised by decision. Moving down to the light heavyweight division, we got 7-0 Vitor Petrino going up against 8-1 Anton Turkali. Starting off on the Petrino side, he earned his contract to the UFC with a big win over a former foe of his, Rodolfo Bellato, via knockout. He had actually knocked out Bellator earlier on in his career, and that came within uh, a couple seconds, if I'm not mistaken. But this fight did sprinkle off into that second, I believe, to the third round as well, where Vitor was able to eventually get that knockout. I believe it was the second round. Sorry. Apologies for that mistake. Uh, but it looked like Bellator was starting to take over. It looked like Petrino was starting to slow down a little bit, given his heavy stri striking style that he tries to implement, utilizing his power, trying to knock his opponents out. And luckily for him, he was able to catch Bellator slipping and was able to get his hand raised by knockout that night. We have seen Petrino go up against a former UFC fighter in Gadzimurad uh, in Antigulov, uh, but it played out pretty much how every Antigulov fight plays out, where Antigulov has a plethora of uh, top control time and able to get uh, some grappling success going. But if he's not able to finish his opponents, he does start to gas out, and that's what Vitor was able to take advantage of, eventually knocking him out in the latter half of that first round, early second round, if I'm not mistaken. But that's what Petrino brings to the table. Some athleticism, some explosiveness, some good knockout power. But I do have a lot of question marks once he deals with fighters that will present more issues to him rather than just somebody who, you know, is not as much out of a higher level striker as him or as somebody who doesn't have a gas tank like Antigulov did. On the Turkali side, he initially had his contender series fight against uh, Asasio Dos Santos uh, overlooked by Dana White. That fight took place on the week one of the last season of the Contender Series, and Dana was not impressed at all, even though Turkali landed, I believe it was 11 takedowns and got just as much control time in minutes, but 
Dana was not impressed and ended up passing on him. Luckily for Turkali, Jilton Almeida's opponent Shamil Abdurrahimov pulled out and Turkali was called upon to jump in on short notice against somebody that almost nobody wanted to fight and Turkali just saw it as an opportunity for him to get into the UFC and that's luckily what was able to happen for him. Now with a full training camp and fighting back down at light heavyweight where he is most comfortable, I'm looking for Turkali to possibly get back onto the winning ways given his grapple heavy style that he usually implements. He's very hard to deal with when he gets that top position has some good ground and pound and has a sneaky submission game if he needs it but it's clear that he does his best work when he is able to drag opponents to the mat his striking run or striking still needs a lot of work in my opinion but i think he can get rid of a lot of the lower level of the light heavy heavyweight division in the ufc just with his grappling and his wrestling alone I don't know how long the plus money is going to hold here on Anton Turkali, but I think that this is a great opportunity for him to go out there and right the wrong of his last fight. I think the reason that uh, Patron, uh, Petrino is a favorite in this matchup is a recency bias. He's a 7-0 light heavyweight with a big knockout victory in the contender series in his last matchup, whereas Turkali just got manhandled by Jelten Almeida. However, he's back at his light heavyweight weight class where he is doing his best work and where he has been undefeated. And I think that we'll see him successfully get back to his wrestling ways just as he did in his first contender series appearance where he landed 11 takedowns and was able to control his opponent for the majority of that fight. I believe it was 11 takedowns. Regardless, I'm expecting a takedown heavy approach here from Takali to slow down Petrino possibly allowing Turkali to get a second or third round stoppage here, more than likely coming via submission. Heading back down to our fourth of five bantamweight bouts on this card, we got 17-2 Saeed Nurmagomedov going up against 17-4 Jonathan Martinez. Starting off on the Saeed Nurmagomedov side, he's running a four-fight winning streak, most recently choking out Saeed Jokob Kakaramanov in his last matchup. That was a fight where Kakramanov tried using his grapple-heavy approach to ground Saeed time and time again, and he was successful for the majority of this fight, but it started to tire him out, and it ultimately left his neck out there to get snatched up by Saeed, and Saeed was able to latch onto that power guillotine choke that he loves to throw on his opponents, and was able to get the submission that night, just as he did against Cody Stamen a couple fights prior, but we've seen that Saeed, if he's not able to get finishes, he has a lot of close fights against some of these opponents that Probably shouldn't, considering the amount of respect that Nurmagomedov normally gets. Douglas Silva Diondraj was able to earn two rounds on two different judges' scorecards. One judge gave him the second round, one judge gave him the third round. You know, on another night, maybe a different judge sees at least both of those rounds for him at the same time and gives him those scorecards. That is fully on display throughout Nurmagomedov's career, even in his UFC debut against Jared Scoggins or Justin Scoggins, I can't recall which one it was. One of the brothers, but it was the Scoggins brother that was in the UFC, uh, where Scoggins, a lot of people felt he got robbed that night. Now, obviously, he came up short against Hani Barcelos as well a couple fights ago, but you see that if he's not able to, to dispatch of his opponents, things get a little bit shaky for him. He's a talented striker, loves to throw a lot of flashy techniques, but it's usually the lack of output that he throws out there that normally gets him into trouble. Uh, he looks for opportunities and he seems a little bit too calculated at times, which allows rounds sometimes to kind of just get past him and sneak by him. That's what he's always going to be at the bane of if he doesn't pick up his urgency in fights. And I would love to see him grapple a little bit more because we've seen those chops out of him, just not enough for him to dominantly win fights when fights end up playing out too close than they should. Jonathan Martinez is riding a four-fight winning streak where he's been looking dominant and more dominant every single time out. From his Alejandro Perez fight where he was able to come back from getting hurt himself to the Vince Morales fight where he hurt him on numerous occasions to eventually finishing Cub Swanson with nasty leg kicks over the course of 10 to 12 minutes, Martinez is improving on a fight-to-fight basis and is a far cry from the opponent or from the fighter that we come to have known when he went up against Andre Sukumtat in his UFC debut. Under the tutelage of Mark Montoya, they've very much refined his striking game, utilizing a kick-heavy game to keep his opponents at distance and only letting go with the hands when he feels comfortable at distance that he can get off on certain strikes and get away from the big knockout power of his opponents. 
Obviously, you fell victim to that against Davy Grant five fights ago. And I think that was a big learning lesson for him to realize, okay, I got to be a little bit safer in some of these spots. How do I do that? And I think him and his coaches have been able to come up with a very solid game plan for him to continue to go out there, utilize you know, telegraph the the shots that are coming his way so that he can go out there and continue to batter his opponents from distance. Very high-level striker, starting to become a much smarter fighter as well. Look out for this 28-year-old in Jonathan Martinez as he starts climbing these rankings and starts adding bigger names to his resume. This is a big test for Jonathan Martinez, but I think he is more than prepared and ready for it. And I think that this is a great stylistic matchup for him to go out there and put his output there, get his kicks off, and utilize his volume style against a guy in Nurmagomedov who has too close to fights with a lot of opponents. I think Nurmagomedov is going to have to wrestle here or he's going to have to find an early knockout. Otherwise, Martinez should be able to cruise in this matchup, getting his output out there, landing his kicks, getting out of the way, and doing good work with his uh, combination striking. I like him in this spot. I like him as the underdog. I just have this bad feeling in the back of my head that Nurmagomedov is going to end up catching him in something. But pre-fight, I think Martinez is the side here, and I think he gets his hand raised by decision. Moving up a division to the featherweights, we got 16-4 and Hikaru Hamosh going up against 9-1 and Austin Lingo. Starting off on the Hamosh side, he's coming off a beautiful spinning back elbow knockout victory over Danny Chavez, where he showcased his flashy striking and reminded us of what we initially thought his potential was when he first came into the UFC. It's been a bit of a roller coaster for him over his last five fights, going three and two, exchanging wins and losses every time out. But when we see him getting his hand raised, you remember why a lot of people were high on him when he came into the UFC. He is a very flashy striker, very good Muay Thai specialist, but has a high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt that he can implement should he look to take fights to the ground more often. I'm curious to know if the time that he used to, or spent at Team Alpha Male in the past is allowing him to go out there and maybe be a little bit more confident in looking to take fights to the ground to showcase his Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and that could possibly keep him safe, especially when most of his losses have started to come by knockout. Laurel Murphy obviously knocked him out with a nasty strike, whereas Zubera Tuhugov was able to get some well-timed takedowns and land some big strikes of his own to eventually hurt Hamosh. But now settled into the featherweight division, I think we'll continue to see a better version of Hamosh every time he steps into the cage. He's 27 years old, and I think he still has a plethora of potential to take advantage of should he really start to get into his groove. He does a very good job of maintaining his range when he used to fight in the bantamweight division, but I think with mixing in some grappling and some clinch situations now at the featherweight division against opponents that will likely be just as tall, if not taller than him now, I think that will give him a lot of success at the UFC level. On the flip side for Austin Lingo, he's coming back from a pretty lengthy layoff. We're talking about almost a year and a half since he's been inside the cage, where the last time he stepped into it, he defeated Luis Aldana after dropping a very tough first round. He got dropped and hurt a bunch of times in that first round, but was able to muster up the motivation in the second and third rounds and beat Luis Saldana to the punch, taking advantage of the poor gas tank that Saldana was showcasing. But Austin Lingo, at his best, showcases his hands, his boxing, and throwing them in combinations. And having a coach like Safe Sayud in your corner, you know that they have a great game plan for him every time he steps out there. They utilize his boxing approach very effectively, using the code that he normally uses with his fighters. Safe Sayud has made Austin Lingo a much better fighter than a fighter with his skill set probably should be. He's 9-1, only has one loss in his career, which came to him, uh, Yusuf Zalal, in his UFC debut. And he might still be able to pick up a couple big wins at the UFC level, but I think he will be a victim uh, due, of his skill set. You know, I think he is just too rooted in that boxing-type approach that better strikers, better jiu-jitsu players are going to be able to take advantage of a fighter like this. Curious to see what the ring rust will mean for him coming into this fight, especially against a high-level opponent like Hikaru Hamos. But we know every time Austin Lingo steps in there, it's usually a barn burner. It's usually a very entertaining fight and usually up there for a fight of the night candidate. So very excited to see him step back in there, but I'm curious to see how he does against a guy of Hikaru Hamos's level. This is a very tough matchup for Austin Lingo to come back to, and I think that Hamosh has 
probably the most or more advantages in this matchup than Lingo. Lingo is probably the better technical boxer in the pocket in this fight, but I think that the kicks of Hamosh and possibly even the takedowns of Hamosh will allow him to keep this fight in his realm where he can utilize his BJJ black belt, and I wouldn't even be surprised if he ends up opening up a submission opportunity for himself that he can take on home with him. So give me Hamosh. I'm a little bit skeptical of the big uh, minus money in favor tag that he's currently at, but I think he is skill sets way ahead of Austin Lingo. Just has to be worried about that big power coming his way from Lingo. Otherwise, I think that Hamos should control the majority of this fight. I like the fight doesn't go to decision the most, but I do like Hamos, and I think he wins this fight by submission. Now let's get to a fight that was scheduled to main event a fight night a couple weeks ago, but got canceled the day of the fight. We got a fight between Nikita Krilov, who comes in with a 29-9 record. He goes up against the 21-7 Ryan Spann. Now, Krilov was forced to f- pull out of the fight last time around. I believe that fight took place, or was supposed to play- take place two weeks ago, but he came down with some sort of illness that caused him to throw up, and he was just feeling very sick. Even got to the venue a lot e- earlier than he should have to try to get some fluids in him, try to get an IV going, try to get him back to health, but it just was not meant to be. Thus, the UFC decided to push the fight back a couple weeks because they felt as though Krilov was still healthy enough to go a couple weeks later, but now they only have two rounds less to worry about and obviously not the main event spotlight. Krilov is a guy that since coming back to the UFC after initially getting cut has very much redefined his game, specifically with his takedown game. During his initial nine fights with the UFC, he went one of six on takedowns in all of those fights. But after returning in 2018, he's attempted seven times the amount of takedowns. He's gone 16 of 42 in eight fights, one fight less than he had before, showcasing that he's started to very much mature at this stage of his career and realizes that he doesn't need to go out there and be as reckless as he used to be. Now he can utilize his grappling prowess and take opponents to the ground, grind them out, or look for a dominant position where he can eventually find a finish. And it's almost to a fault, like is showcased in his last loss against Paul Craig, where he ended up still taking... Paul Craig to the ground even though he had a decided advantage in the striking realm he still decided to take the fight to the ground and eventually fell into the trap of the bear Jew and Paul Craig was able to pull off that triangle choke victory beautiful win for Paul Craig that night but Krilov showcasing in his last fight against Volkan Uzdemir after landing a plethora of takedowns that he can go out there and grind the highest of a level of opponents to the mat and just do some work from on top and be completely fine with having a boring fight should that be the case His striking is still up to snuff, but it's really his grappling that looks to shine at this stage of his career. On the Ryan Spann side of things, I'm sure he's gutted that he was not able to get that main event slot again, but I think he's just happy to get back into the cage relatively quickly and still try to get his hand raised in this fight. He's riding a two-fight winning streak and hoping to make it three in a row now and really assert himself in the top of this light heavyweight division with Jamal Hill as the light heavyweight king at this point in time. First rounds are a constant theme throughout Span's career as most of his fights finish inside the distance, specifically in that first round. Six of his nine UFC fights have finished in the first round. He's either the one getting the kill or he's the one being carried out on his shield. He's a very heavy puncher and has a very sneaky guillotine choke if opponents start to jump in on desperation takedowns. Just ask Devin Clark. Outside of that, I'm not that much impressed with him. He just seems like a guy that's been able to get away with his big physical lumbering stature that he brings to the light heavyweight division, his power, his agility, or sorry, I should say his explosiveness and his strength have allowed him to get a lot of wins over most of his opponents. But we saw him almost almost lose a decision back uh, against Sam Alvey back in 2020. That was very skeptical. You know, I mean, at, at that stage of his career, he should not have been having a close fight against Sam Alvey the way that he did. But he is at a point now where he's on a two-fight winning streak and looks to get his hand raised once again this weekend against Nikita Krilov. It's tough to have confidence in Krilov in this fight considering that he was the reason that this fight got initially cancelled two weeks ago. But if he feels comfortable enough in terms of taking this two weeks afterwards, I gotta believe that he feels healthy enough to go out there and implement his game plan. And his game plan, more than likely, drag this fight to the ground. And as long as he can keep his neck safe in those instances where Span is going to be looking to choke him out, he should be able to get this fight to the ground. He should be able to do good work from on top. And I think he'll eventually be able to open up either a submission opportunity or a TKO opportunity 
opportunity for himself in the latter stages of the second round or early portions of the third round. Give me Krilov inside the distance. Let's say by submission, but that early threat from Ryan Spanner is going to be, it's going to be a lot, which will likely keep me off of this fight completely, but I still think that Krilov wins this fight, and I think it happens inside the distance. Time for the co-main event of the evening, which takes place in the heavyweight division, where we got 35-10 Alexander Volkov going up against 16-1 Alexander Romanov. Starting off on the Volkov side, he's coming off a victory over Jerzino Rosenstrike back in June, where he was able to knock out Rosenstrike in that first round. That was coming off of a loss to Tom Aspinall a couple months prior, or I should say even a several weeks prior to that, where he took a short order spot against Aspinall, lost that fight, did not feel good about it, and jumped in as quickly as he could so that he can get his hand raised once again, and that's what he did against Rosenstrike. At 34 years old, I think Volkov still has a lot to offer to this heavyweight division, even though he has 45 fights of experience under his belt. He's a nasty Muay Thai practitioner who has big kicks and striking from distance, and he has normally showed off a very good uh, takedown defense uh, game against certain opponents, but when guys really want to get him to the ground, like a Tom Aspinall and Curtis Blades were able to, there's not much that he can do about it. And that could end up being a shortcoming this weekend. But if he's able to keep fights on the feet and if he's able to utilize his range and his striking, he's very difficult to deal with and usually is able to hurt his opponents over and over again. Knocked out over Reem and Rosa Strike over his last five fights. Also went to a decision against Marcin Taibura, but... Again, I, I don't know what his ceiling is at this point in time, especially when fighters are able to put the full mixed martial arts game together a lot better than a guy like Volkov. On the Romanov side, he's coming off his first ever professional MMA loss when he lost a decision to Marcin Taibura. In that first round, he had a very dominant round where one judge actually scored a 10-8, but his gas tank started to fall off as it did in the Juan Espino fight, and Marcin Taboro was able to take over in that second and third round, winning that fight by decision. Again, I thought that first round should have been a 10-8, is what it is. Hopefully, Romanov learns from that fight and utilizes it moving forward, especially considering that he's only 32 and in the heavyweight division, you're, that pretty much means that you're like 24 or 25 years old. Romanov fights pretty much exactly like his nickname, King Kong, when he's able to get opponents to the ground and utilize his ground and pound, a lot of it coming from hammer fist, but he doesn't just rely on that. If he sees a submission opportunity open up, he'll try to snatch that up and take that home with him as well. He's very good from that top position, but I'd like to see him utilize his gas tank and manage his gas tank a little bit better, especially if he's not able to get his opponents out of there early, something that he was accustomed to before getting to the UFC. However, I still think he's a very difficult opponent to deal with, especially when he's able to get a hold of you, a hold of you and slam you to the ground, which is inevitable in almost every single one of his matchups. If you're his opponent, you got to hope that you can survive that early onslaught because you have a huge uh, skill discrepancy or at least cardio discrepancy should you be able to get into the second and third rounds because Romanov does start to fall off in productivity and efficiency as fights start to roll into that second and third round. I'm curious to see if we'll see a better version of Romanov this weekend, but his grappling should more than should be more than enough more often than not against the, I'd say, you know, top top 20 to top 8 of the UFC heavyweight division. I get why this fight is pretty close on the money line here, and I completely understand why. It could go one of two ways. Either Romanov gets that early takedown and smashes Volkov from on top, either by submissions or gets his uh, King Kong punches going, or Volkov uh, survives that early onslaught and starts chipping away at Romanov later on in this fight and eventually knocking him out in that second or third round. I'm going to lean with the former, though. I think Romanov's high-level... well. Uh, strong takedowns will definitely come to fruition early in this matchup and then I think from there he should be able to get dominant position not easily but with good patience and good technique he should be able to pass to a dominant position and I think from there he should be able to lock up with submission I wouldn't even be surprised if it comes from a similar type of submission that Tom Aspinall was able to pull off because you know as much as King Kong loves getting those hammer fists going he does look for submission opportunities as well and that Americana slash Kimura is definitely something that he has in his pocket and I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what he pulls off here fight doesn't go to decision will likely be my favorite bet for this specific matchup but I do think it's going to be Romanov Romanov round one Romanov by submission oh boy 
main event time here in the bantamweight division five rounds between 16 and 4 Pyotr Jan and 15 and 4 Marab Davalishvili starting off on the Jan side I gotta be surprised I did not think we'd ever see this much red on his record especially in his last five fights but it is what it is He's coming off that loss to Sean O'Malley last time around at UFC 280. A very close fight in terms of the output that Sean O'Malley was able to land. But once the judges' scorecards were read, even O'Malley, after getting his hand raised, seemed a little bit skeptical whether he deserved to get his hand raised or not. But that is where the truth is, or at least the concerns in Pyrion's game is, which is sometimes he just does not have enough output to sway the judges in his favor. We've, saw, we've seen him have very close rounds in the past against other opponents, and I believe Aljamain Sterling got, won the first round on a couple judges' scorecards just off of running in circles and landing a couple strikes here and there and just avoiding the big shots of Jan because that's all Jan was kind of looking for. But Jan has been able to use that type of style very effectively because he's been able to go out there and utilize a, a very power-striking game, like a power-heavy game. What, what I mean by that is like, he he waits for he he has like a calculated and methodical approach of waiting for his opponents to throw that so that he can counter effectively and land the bigger and more significant strikes. He's been able to hurt opponents, and it was the Jimmy Rivera fight that really you know kind of opened my eyes to Piotr Jan in regards to you know it looked like for the first two rounds he was losing the first four to four and a half minutes of both of those rounds, but was able to land knockdowns at the end of it, which was able to sway the judges back into his favor. But hopefully over the last run that he's been on, he's able to learn a couple things. Because if I think, he, or I think if he is able to open up a little bit more and showcase his striking and try to put more damage on his opponents, he will be an even harder threat for a lot of opponents to deal with. And he's only 30 years old. He's a very deadly Muay Thai striker and his grappling and wrestling is very high level as well. Obviously, Aljamain Sterling's jiu-jitsu was too much for him, but I don't expect him to deal with anybody with as high-level jiu-jitsu as Aljamain Sterling in the top five of this division. Pyrion, if he wants to keep fights on the feet, he will more than likely be able to keep fights on the feet, again, as long as they're not like the human Jan sport, uh, Aljamain Sterling. But Jan, uh, good defensive wrestling, good offensive wrestling as well. Does a great job of landing good damage from on top when he's able to get his opponents to the ground. But let's not forget that he does his best work when he's able to strike with you, get, get you in the pocket to exchange with him, and land his big and devastating power. On the flip side for Marab Devalishvili, he gets his first taste of a main event slot here against um, Pyotr Jan, and he's riding a very solid winning streak as well. Last time around, he defeated the legend Jose Aldo, where he was able to control him for a very large period of time. I believe it was uh, five minutes of control time that he was able to accrue against Jose Aldo, but he went 0 of 16 on takedowns that night. He just utilized far superior output, more takedowns, and or more takedown attempts, and it just looked like he was more controlled or, or controlling that fight more often because Aldo seemed a little bit just muzzled. He just didn't seem like he was comfortable throwing in fear of getting taken down by Marab. And it was very impressive that Aldo was able to shuck off 16 takedown attempts, but he just couldn't get any of his own offense off. Dvalishvili, you know, the machine nickname is more than apropos for this guy. He's completed 64 takedowns on 155 attempts in 10 UFC fights. That's how this guy fights. You know, his striking still needs a little bit of work, in my opinion, but he's using his constant movement, constant side-to-side movement and crashing the pocket where he's able to stay safe and then get on, on the hips of his opponents and drag these guys to the ground. The reason he's able to secure 64 takedowns in 10 fights is because his opponents are able to work back to the feet relatively easily. His control time is not the greatest, or at least his control from on top is not the greatest, which is why opponents have been able to work to the feet. But that's where he's able to kind of shut down the rest of their game because they're just scared of the inevitable takedown that's coming back their way. But we've seen some opponents take advantage of the striking deficiencies in Devalishvili's games. And even though it hasn't ended up with them getting their hand raised, you do see those flaws that higher level opponents will eventually be able to take advantage of. And that's where my concerns for Devalishvili are with. Yes, he has a great style of winning fights, especially winning decisions concerning how uh, high output and how much activity he brings to the table. But it's going to be the more technical opponents that are able to keep it on the feed and utilize the striking and take advantage of his striking shortcomings where Devalish really will start to meet uh, tough times and meet resistance and may even end up losing some fights.
But credit to him for making it to this point in his career. Credit to being one of the best fighters to implement this type of style because it's very hard to do so, especially doing it for a full 15 minutes and not looking like you're slowing down even a bit. I like Dvalishvili, but his time might be coming to a close, especially with him now starting to fight the top three of the division. I am very excited for this matchup. Not so much so that like it's Piotr Jan fighting, but more so that we might finally see Marab Dvalishvili exposed. Right? I, I came up on the short end when I put when I picked Jose Aldo against him last time. And although my prediction of Jose Aldo not succumbing to one takedown came to fruition, it just seemed like he was muzzled with the fact that he knew that he would eventually get taken down if he were to start opening him up with the strikes, which rendered him pretty much useless because he wasn't able to get off on his game at, at all. Piotr Jan, on the other hand, I think he will successfully be able to uh, stop the takedowns. I think he might get taken down one or two times, but I believe in his ability to work back to his feet, coupled with the fact that Dvalishvili is just not that great of a uh, control artist, especially when he's able to get that top position. And I think from the on the feet, Jan's not going to be that or as shy or as gun shy as Jose Aldo was. And I think that will allow Piotr Jan here to get off on some significant strikes. I think that will out way the control and the takedowns and clinch time that Dvalishvili is going to get allowing Piotr Jan to get ahead on the scorecards and which will eventually open up a knockout opportunity for him as these takedowns start to get harder to come by for Marab Dvalishvili so uh, I think Marab will have some moments of success in this fight but I think ultimately the damage and ultimate knockout power of Piotr Jan is going to shine through here and I think he knocks out Marab Dvalishvili within three rounds maybe even the fourth but I think he knocks him out considerably the huge skill discrepancy in terms of technical striking abilities i think jan is far superior to marab in that realm and again like i said defensive wrestling good enough for jan defensive get-ups for jan just good enough marab does not have that jujitsu controlling abilities that aljo does and i don't think that's going to come into play here which will allow uh jan to keep this fight in the stand-up realm where he'll have the majority of success and eventually find that knockout on marab i also look for a lot of leg kicks here from jan specifically to that calf which should slow down the explosivity and the takedown success of marab and allow jan to start letting loose with his hands which will allow him to get that knockout Piotr jan Let's call it round three knockout. There you guys go. Full card breakdown for UFC Las Vegas. If you guys enjoyed the breakdowns, hit that like and subscribe below if you haven't already. Like I said at the top of the show, Bellator 292 breakdowns coming out, aiming for Wednesday, latest Thursday, but Wednesday is my target date to release it for you guys. So keep your guys keep your eyes peeled for that. And then also uh, PFL Challenger Series Week 7 and LFA 154 full card breakdowns exclusively on the Patreon, link in the description below. Appreciate all the love, appreciate all the support. You guys are the fucking best, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Let's get to another UFC card here, and then that teases us up for the big UFC 286 card, which goes down the following weekend in London, headlined by the trilogy match between Kamar Usman and Leon Edwards. Can't wait to break it all down for you guys. You guys are awesome, like I said. See you guys again throughout the week for the Lucky Trinity and the three best prop bets and obviously the Bellator 292 breakdowns. Peace!